Welcome to episode 12 of The Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. We're finishing up the section that's called Mary Kenworthy and the Railroads, 1873 to 1893. Then we'll start an entirely new section that's called Fire. Mrs. Kenworthy and Judge Green had few political convictions in common. They both believed, however, that the anti-Chinese agitation was part of a planned drive toward a socialist state. Mary Kenworthy had no doubt about it. She believed what she had told the mass meetings, that the conflict between labor and capital was irrepressible, and she had enlisted for the duration of that dubious battle. When the annual municipal election campaign began in June 1886, she was as active as ever. The election was certainly an extension of the fight over the Chinese, The businessman's ticket this time was called the Loyal League. At its head was Arthur A. Denny, the pioneer who had measured the harbor with a horseshoe on a clothesline. Against him was William Shouty, a political unknown. For chief of police, the People's Party was running William Murphy, who had been forced by Mayor Yesler to resign as chief because he had not protected the Chinese. Murphy's opponent, a Colonel Scott, told the voters, I believe there is but one issue in this campaign, law and order on the one side, and anarchy, disloyalty, and trouble on the other, as we had on the 7th of February, unquote. Murphy was elected. So was Shouty, though he beat Denny by a bare 44 votes out of 2,400. For the first time, the people's ticket was triumphant in Seattle. In the November elections, the populists made a clean sweep of county offices. A friend of Mary Kenworthy said that Mary wept for joy when she heard the result of the election. Her dream soon faded. The candidates who had roared like socialist lions from the platform, who had frightened even Judge Green into believing they might attempt a redistribution of property, were lambs in office. Responsibility sobered them, and returning prosperity eased the pressure that had forced them into office. The people's officials did little to change things, and if Mary Kenworthy wept again, it was not for joy. Then, in January 1887, the Territorial Supreme Court declared that the enfranchisement of Washington's women had been unconstitutional, Judge Green dissenting. Mary and her sisters had lost the vote. The people's people lost the next election. In 1889, Washington became the 42nd state, and the Republicans elected Elisha P. Ferry its first governor. With that, Mary Kenworthy withdrew from active participation in politics. She made an occasional speech but the razor edge of her tongue was dulled. She remained a radical, but the fight was no longer in her. I've lived too long, she told a friend, when ex-Sheriff McGraw was elected governor of Washington State in 1892. There is no record of what she thought when she learned that a new railroad was coming over the mountains and that again Seattle hoped to become the western terminus of a transcontinental line. The Great Northern was the creation of Jim Hill, probably the soundest of all the men who dreamed of steel tracks. Hill knew engineering and finance and marketing and mining. He laid out a line that was a hundred miles shorter than the Northern Pacific, had fewer degrees total grade, and had its steepest climbs concentrated so that it was easier to double-team engines. The Great Northern cost more to build than the NP, but was cheaper to operate. One of the things Hill had in mind was hauling Pacific Coast lumber to the Midwest, and to do that he had to keep rates low. Otherwise, Douglas fir could not compete with southern pine. As a businessman, Hill certainly considered the financial possibilities of the evergreen forests through which his railroad ran. 
but his excitement was undoubtedly stimulated by the man who lived next door to him on Summit Avenue in St. Paul, Frederick Warehouser, the man most lumbermen consider the greatest lumberman of them all. Warehouser was not only Hill's neighbor, but his associate, and he became a director of the Great Northern. Even before it reached the Pacific, the new line was deeply involved in the politics of lumber. When Hill pushed his tracks through the Red River Valley in 1891, he claimed the land that Congress had offered 34 years earlier to the first railroad to cross the valley. The courts upheld his claim, but the people who had settled on the land in the third of a century since the original offer protested strenuously. Congress heard them. When Hill suggested a solution, Congress happily accepted it. The Great Northern was given the right to choose equal amounts of government land elsewhere. Hill picked timbered lands. They turned out to have minerals, too. And so it was that Hill and Weyerhaeuser came west not only as operators of a railroad, but as the biggest property owners in the area. While the Great Northern was accumulating stumpage, Hill was pursuing the old policy of keeping everyone guessing about the terminus. Judge Burke constituted himself a one-man committee to see to Seattle's interests. The Irishman talked so persuasively that Hill agreed to make Seattle his terminus and hired Burke as attorney to represent him in his negotiations with Seattle property owners and city officials. Burke got the land for Hill, though a crusty city engineer named R.H. Thompson, and called that man Thompson, blocked Burke's efforts to get the city council to give the Great Northern most of the waterfront. The first of Hill's trains rolled into Seattle in July 1893. The city scheduled a major celebration, but again a panic gripped the nation's economy. The businessmen from the east who had been invited were too busy, or too broke, to come west, and the celebration was called off except for some routine Fourth of July oratory. Seattle didn't much miss the party. It consoled itself with the terminus. There was another consolation. The Northern Pacific had gone broke again, and this time Jim Hill helped pick up the pieces. With a friend of Seattle in charge of both the rail lines, the city could expect a brighter future. No longer would the Northern Pacific oppose Seattle's progress. The Panic of 93 concentrated the power of the railroads in Hill's hands. It also led to a resurgence of the populists. Mary Kenworthy saw her old enemy, Governor McGraw, defeated for re-election in 1896. In his place, the people of Washington put John R. Rogers, a radical from Maine who had made his political reputation by pushing through the state legislature the barefoot schoolboy law, said to be the first state law guaranteeing every child a common school education, a terribly socialistic doctrine for the time. Two years later, the Orientals came back to Seattle in grand style. Jim Hill had learned that a Japanese steamship line had decided to start regular service to the West Coast and that the Japanese had about made up their minds to use San Diego as port of entry. He sent an agent to Tokyo to sing the praises of Seattle and the Great Northern, the agent sang sweetly, and on August 31, 1896, the Mickey Maru of the Nippon Yusan Kaisha line steamed into Elliott Bay. When the liner was sighted, the church bells and fire bells clanged, the bands began to play, and tens of thousands of Seattleites flocked to the waterfront to cheer as she was made fast to the dock. The first steamer to cross the Pacific on a regularly scheduled voyage with cargo and passengers. The dream of Seattle as the gateway to the Orient was coming true. With the arrival of the Mickey Maru, Seattle's attitude toward the Oriental came full cycle. Again, the Asiatics were looked on not as a menace, but as the solemn symbols of the wealth of the Far East. There was little objection among the townsfolk when some Japanese and later Chinese settled in Seattle. After the Spanish-American War, there was an influx of Filipinos. 
Mary Kenworthy, who thought she had lived too long when she saw women lose the franchise, lived long enough to vote again in a Seattle election in 1911. She died a few months before the event, which, in all Seattle's history, would probably have aroused the most enthusiasm in her, the general strike of 1919. Many people still living remember the widow Kenworthy as she appeared in their youth, the tall woman with gray hair and a black dress. Women who are old now but were girls when they came to know her recall that she was, quote, nice but sort of queer, unquote. A reformer who knew her when she was still active politically remarked of her recently, quote, she was a fiery one, Mary Kenworthy, a fiery one. Said what she thought with something added. You knew where she stood, all right, no doubt of that. She'd tell old Nick to his face, she would. But you know, I don't want to do an injustice to the dead, mind you. But you know, I wouldn't be surprised, not at all surprised, if she was a bit of a free thinker, unquote. And now the section called Fire. No rain fell during the first week of June in 1889. Day followed day in soft brightness. The wind held from the north, and the thermometer dropped to the 50s at night, rose to the 70s during the day. It was the best of all possible seasons. The salmon were striking out in the bay, and in the valleys the vegetables matured early. Farmers hauled wagon loads of lettuce and peas and rhubarb along the plank streets to the markets, and the children came back from burying with baskets of red raspberries and black raspberries and salmon berries. The firs were fringed with new green, and ferns covered the dead grass of winter. The city was growing like a young alder. The railroads were hauling people west, and Seattle was getting its share of the influx. The population had been 3,533 in 1880. Now it was almost ten times as much. Among those impressed by the town's possibilities was a young man named F.M. Gordon, newly arrived from Maine. At 2.30 p.m. on Thursday, June 6th, having made up his mind that Seattle was a place with a predictable future, young Gordon paid $2,500, his entire capital, for a fourth interest in a tailor shop on Front Street. At about the time that Gordon received his receipt, Madame Fightsworth Ewens, who specialized in reading the future by means of colored clamshells, was giving a customer some advice in the nearby Pontius Building. In the office next to hers, Dr. Sturgeons, a dentist recently from Boston, was peering into the mouth of a logger. On the ground floor of the building, J.P. Madigan was showing some boots to a housewife. In the basement, James McGuff, who ran a paint store and woodwork shop, was finishing a cabinet. His assistant was heating glue over a gasoline stove. Around 2.40 p.m., the glue boiled over. Some of it, falling on the stove, caught fire. Flaming globs of glue splashed on the floor, which was littered with wood shavings and soaked with turpentine. The flames spread over the boards. McGuff tried to douse them with water from the fire bucket. The water mixed with the turpentine and burst into flame. McGuff and his assistant fled. Even before the cabinet makers rushed from the building, someone on the street saw the smoke and called the fire department. The flames burst through the wooden ceiling, driving Madigan and the housewife from the shoe store, Dr. Sturgeons and the patient from the dentist's office, Madame Fightsworth Ewens and her client from the far-sighted clamshells. A hose cart pulled from the station at 2nd and Columbia by men and boys reached the scene first. Close behind the cart came the town's first steam fire engine. The hose company tied up to the hydrant at Madison. The steam engine took the next hydrant south, two blocks away. The burning glue and leather threw off so much smoke that the firemen had trouble finding the heart of the flame. They shot water hopefully onto the outer walls of the two-story wood building and onto the roof until someone pried off the clapboards at street level. The basement was a furnace. The firemen poured water into the basement, but it was too late. The fire was out of control. 
Flames ate through the thin walls into the Denny Block, a ramshackle two-story building that stretched along the west side of Front to Marion Street. The first shop the fire reached in the Denny Block was the Dietz and Mayer liquor store. Whiskey barrels in the basement exploded and showered the walls with flaming alcohol. When the Crystal Palace Saloon and the Opera House Saloon caught fire a moment later, more high-proof fuel was added to the flames. Twenty minutes after the glue pot tipped over, the entire block from Madison to Marion was aflame. Young Mr. Gordon had only his receipt to show for the money he had invested. There was still a chance to save the investments of other businessmen. Firemen struggled to keep the flames from spreading. The wind was from the north-northeast. The buildings in most danger were the commercial mill, a shed-like structure across the alley toward the bay from the Denny Block, the Coleman Building on the west side of Front Street, across Marion from the fire, and a three-story brick building, the Fry Opera House, on the northeast corner of Front and Marion. One fire company was pumping water from the bay to the mill. Mill hands were spraying its sides with small hoses and slapping wet blankets and gunny sacks on the long shake roof. Steam engine number two was on a wharf behind the Coleman building, but the tide was out and the hoses would stretch only to the side of the building away from the fire. Steam engine number one, hooked up to the hydrant on Columbia, was trying to save the opera house. As more and more hoses were brought into play, pressure fell. The water mains were too small. The streams dwindled until little more than a trickle came from the brass nozzles. Several times wooden sills on the opera house flared, but each time the firemen doused them with a thin, well-aimed stream. Shortly after three o'clock, a burning brand, carried high by the great updraft of hot air from the Denny block, fell on the opera house roof. The streams from the hoses could not reach it, and the roof torched. Inside the building, stagehands worked desperately to haul scenery to safety. A rescue party climbed to the Masonic Hall on the third floor and came out with the more important effects, but the building was lost. Almost at the same moment, the north side of the Coleman building burst into flame, and the roof of the commercial mill caught fire in several places. The wind rose. Square-jawed Robert Moran, the businessman mayor of the town, took command from James Murphy, the acting fire chief, who was distraught. The regular chief was in San Francisco attending a convention on firefighting methods. The mayor ordered the Coleman block blown up to form a fire gap. A heavy charge of dynamite was placed under the Palace restaurant. The crowd cheered when Moran gave the signal and the building fell in under the blast. But the fire swept across the wreckage. It spread to the wharfs from the commercial mill. It climbed east up the hill toward 2nd Avenue from the Opera House. So great was the heat that the fire pushed backward against the wind across Madison Street into the Kenyon Block, which housed, in addition to stores, the press of the Seattle Times. By 4 o'clock, the townsfolk knew that the business district was doomed. The pillar of purplish smoke rising above the town was plainly visible in Tacoma, 20 miles to the south. The roar of the flames could be heard for miles. The steam whistles of the mills and on the ships moored along the waterfront shrieked steadily. Church bells tolled. The bells in the fire stations clanged. Frantic telegraph messages for more equipment went out to towns nearby and to Tacoma an hour away, to Portland five hours away, to Victoria half a day away by boat. Businessmen and homeowners began to empty their buildings of everything movable. Household goods were piled on street corners. Wagons loaded with goods rumbled over the plank streets. Those who couldn't hire wagons, most of the expressmen kept their charges down, although bids were reported to run as much as $500 for a single half-mile trip, carried what they could on their backs. Some struggled up the hill into the residential district. Others ran south before the flames. Many headed onto the wharfs. When the wharfs began to burn, the ships hastily took aboard what they could and moved out to deep water. 
Still, the fire roared on. It jumped Columbia Street and swept south. It crossed 2nd Street and closed in on Trinity Church on 3rd. No one tried very hard to save the church. Quote, it was a wooden structure and had on its front end a tall bell tower, one volunteer fireman said later. It was so ugly the fire would have been a failure if that tower had been left standing, unquote. The courthouse, with its property records upstairs and prisoners in the jail downstairs, stood across the street from the Trinity. A murder trial was in progress in Judge C.H. Hanford's court. The judge hoped to avoid adjourning court and separating the jury, which was supposed to remain isolated until the end of the trial. He kept court in session while fire bells clanged in the streets below and smoke poured in the windows. But justice was not being served. The witness on the stand, a businessman, could not keep his mind on the questions he was being asked. The merchants on the jury peered anxiously through the smoke toward their stores. The crowd thinned until only the officials were present. With the flames mounting, the Trinity Bell Tower only a hundred feet away, Judge Hanford closed the court and told the bailiff to let the jurors go their separate ways until the following Monday. Before they could get out of the room, he drafted some of them to try to save the courthouse. Outside, a hose company was trying without much success to get water above the first floor of the three-story wooden building. Clerks were hastily bundling records into baskets and sacks and carrying them up the hill. The jailers shackled their 120 prisoners and herded them toward the armory. Few thought the courthouse could be saved, and beyond the courthouse stood the residential section. Quote, we got a ladder from somewhere, Judge Hanford recalled later, but it was too short to reach the eaves of the building. It was long enough, however, so that if some of us held it perpendicular, an agile fellow could reach from the top end to the roof and pull himself up. The name of the agile young fellow who did that is Lawrence S. Booth, and there's a footnote. Mr. Booth was still in business in Seattle in 1951. He climbed up and stood on the roof. It was still smoking then. In a few seconds, it would have been blazing. We used the halyards on the flagstaff to haul buckets of water up to him. He dashed the water on the roof where it was smoking. The courthouse was saved, unquote. A few other bucket brigades scored victories. To the north, the fire had backed four blocks against the wind, reaching as far as Front and University Streets. A few doors south of that intersection stood the solid, comfortable house of Jacob Levy, one of the town's most popular men. Sixty of his friends formed a bucket brigade and for two hours outfought the fire. At least fifty times or so, the firefighters agreed the next day. Burning brands dropped from the purple sky on the dry cedar roof, but each time the brand was put out before it could spread. The house was saved. In the business district, another bucket brigade saved the Boston block. Yesler's fine residence steamed but did not burn under the cover of a hundred wet blankets. But the San Francisco store, the finest commercial building in the city, thought to be fireproof because it was made of brick and equipped with iron shutters, burned after the intense heat exploded the shutters. A half million dollars worth of merchandise went up with the building. When the fire reached the Gordon Hardware Company, 30 tons of cartridges began to explode. The fusillade lasted half an hour. A few minutes later, the flames ate into the Seattle hardware store and another 20 tons of ammunition went off. Other shots were fired in earnest. A patrolman, James Campbell, saw a man trying to get in the back door of the Puget Sound National Bank and ordered him to stop. The man shot at Campbell and Campbell fired back. Both missed. Another policeman shot at a man he saw carrying burning brands across an alley near Yesler Way. The man dashed into a house, which later burned. The newspaper speculated, hopefully, that the firebug had died in his own trap, but no trace of a body was found in the ruins. Rumors spread that two plunderers had been hanged. Mayor Moran declared martial law, asked that militia be called out, and swore in a home guard. Thousands fled the city. 
Others came for miles to help fight the fire or just to watch. The last great battle was fought along Yesler Way. Moran ordered crews to tear down the shacks along both sides of the wide street. All the small buildings were smashed. A few of the larger ones were dynamited. The planks from the street were ripped up and carried away. But the rising wind of early evening carried the flames across the fire gap, and when the fire touched the wooden shacks of the skid road, there was no hope for stopping it. Whores and pimps and white-aproned barkeeps fled south before the flames. Shortly before eight o'clock, the blood-red sun dropped behind the mountains across the bay. As darkness settled, the glow of the burning city was reflected on the scattered clouds. The fire burned on until, around three in the morning, there was nothing more in the business district or the skid road or the waterfront to burn. The fire had swept through 120 acres. Twenty-five city blocks, the heart of the town, were burned almost clean. Every wharf, every mill from Union to Jackson Streets was gone. And we'll stop there. That's the end of episode 12 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road by Murray Morgan, published by Viking in 1951. On the next episode, we'll hear more about the aftermath of the Great Seattle Fire. I'm Felix Bunnell.